Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's the word of God. Now, in the 4th century, so 5th century, 402 BC, it was a spr- or AD, sorry, uh, it was spring, and the Romans went to battle against Alaric, the king of the Goths. And on this occasion, they managed to defeat this king, Alaric. However, eventually, it would, he would eventually win out and uh, cause the downfall of Rome. But in this occasion, they won. And so they celebrate by having massive parties and games in Rome, including a big festival uh, full of gladiatorial games in the Colosseum. And a monk who had come from the east named Telemachus nothing is known about this monk. In fact, this whole story is shrouded in varying different stories and accounts. But Telemachus, this monk, comes. He says he heard from God that he should go to Rome. So he goes to Rome. And when he gets there, there's a party happening. And as he gets there, there's a, it's the sea of people that flood into the Colosseum. So he goes with them. And when he gets there, expecting to see festivities, he sees hundreds of gladiators in the arena fighting in a great battle, just killing each other, butchering each other. He's appalled by what he sees. And at this point, Christianity has already been the, the, the chief religion in Rome for 60 years or so. And so, uh, although it's, it, it, Christian influence is growing in the Roman Empire, it's not yet at its peak. And so, they haven't quite done away with the gladiatorial games. Eventually it will be, and every historian will agree, Christianity is the reason. But many also point to this man, because he sees the appalling, the appalling scene. And, it, and this is what we do know. We do know he jumps into the arena. We do know that he starts crying out, asking the gladiators to stop. What he says specifically is varied, depending on the source. But it looks like he yelled, in the name of Christ, stop. In the name of Christ, stop. Repeated it over and over. And Fox's Book of Martyrs actually says that what he says was um, uh, that they should, uh, don't show, don't take the grace that God has shown you by saving you from your enemies and now turn swords on each other. What are you doing? 
And he says this so often that the crowds just start saying, who is this guy? And they start throwing things at him. And eventually a gladiator has enough and stabs him and kills Telemachus. And Telemachus dies. And at that point, we know this. The crowd gets very silent and people start to leave. And in Fox's book of martyrs, which kind of covers all these, the, the, the accounts of all various early church martyrs, here is what we read. The shock of such a death before the, uh, their eyes turned the hearts of the people. They saw the hideous aspects of the favorite vice to which they had blindly surrendered themselves. And from the day, of Telemachus, the day Telemachus fell dead in the Colosseum, no other fight of gladiators was ever held there. So we don't know exactly what went on, but here's what we do know. Telemachus, this no-name monk, he's known more in his death than his life, goes into the arena, tries to stop the gladiatorial games, again, it's really a futile effort, you'd think. He gets killed, and as a result, people are appalled. But why are they appalled? They've seen thousands of people die this way. At least on that day, they've seen dozens, if not hundreds. And so why does this death impact them? Why is it that historians say, even if it took a decade before they got rid of the games, it was partly because people saw that, including the, the emperor, heard of this and said it was appalling that he would be butchered like this. And so why? He surely didn't think he was going to shut down the gladiatorial games. So what is it that caused him to be this sort of a person? Why, is, why does this death bother them? And the Book of Martyrs gets this part right, I think, when it says it was the shock of such a death. It wasn't just any death. They've seen people die. But it was the death of one who said, I would rather die than watch others die. I'd rather lose my life than have these men lose theirs. And that sort of a sacrificial life, death, which is like Christ's, is what causes the problem. That's what gets people thinking. And so in this passage that we've just read, we're seeing the first time that the church and the state comes to blows. Jesus had pr plenty of problems with the religious elites uh, in, his, in the Gospels. But this is the first time the church, without Jesus, at least his physical body, comes and they are now face to face and they're facing opposition from the, the established elites. And so what we do know is this, they come out of that tribunal, remember the questioning last week? They came out of that saying, well, we're still going to preach. That's not changing. And so why is it? What is it about the church that is so unshakable? Because what these people saw in Rome in Telemachus was an unshakable person who couldn't be dissuaded, even though it was a threat to his life. And now we're seeing earlier, 400 years before Telemachus, that this unshakableness was already there in the church. And so how did they get that way? And we see it in the prayer that they pray. Because what they pray, the way this church prays, they show and reveal what they believed about who God was to them and who he was. And as a result, out of that knowledge, they were unshakable. Something about what they knew and what they profess in this prayer shows why they were unshakable. And if we as Christians also understand this, we will begin to be a people who are unshakable in the face of opposition. And so we're going to look at this. We're going to see that their prayer shows that unshakable Christians know who they pray to, what to pray for, and why they are heard. Okay? So first we're going to look at who they pray to. So this is a petitionary prayer. So petitionary prayers, and there's lots of different kinds of prayers, are the prayers that say, um, hey God, do something for me. It's when you ask God for something. It's a petition. And so what's interesting about this, however, and may, it's not a paradigm for all prayers, but it certainly is, is worth us at least considering. It's seven verses long. Five of those seven verses are just describing God. They're praise. Only two of those verses are actually asking God for something. Now, when I do a pastoral prayer later, 
My temptation, and our temptation when we do those prayers is the opposite, isn't it? We spend very little time praising God. And it's not because we're horrible humans, though Calvin says we are. It's not, it's not what we're doing. What we, what the reason we do it is we think we've got to get to this list. And I've got to touch off every name because if I don't touch on them, well, they're going to be upset, you know, if I don't mention their name. Or maybe do we think secretly that if I don't verbalize it, then God doesn't know there's a need and he doesn't know we actually are for it. I don't know what we do, why we do it. But what ends up happening is we invert it and we turn our prayers into much more petition and much less praise. So why is it that they do this? Why do the prayers of the church seem to invert it and make the petition relatively small, but the praise really high? And the reason is because this is why, listen, this is why churches open services the way they do. We're not super liturgical. Well, every church is liturgical. Liturgy just means the order we follow. But we're not classically liturgical, meaning we don't have a formal call to worship, then a song and prayer of adoration, and then repentance, and then our confession, and repentance, and the words of the gospel. And the, you know, we don't go through those steps. But the reason the church, even the evangelical church that observes no real historic liturgy, still starts with adoration. Why? It's because two things. First, it's praise that God is worthy of it. God deserves it. So he gets praise. He should, we should do, give everything. Our first fruits of everything should be of pray, in praise of God. But the second thing is it's preparation. Because we need to be prepared to orient ourselves towards God before we ask him. We need to know and remind ourselves of who it is that we ask before we ask him because it affects the way we pray. And I'll, we'll try to explain that. And look at what they do. Let's just walk through the first few verses. They describe God with at least, and I'm going to go through four descriptors. The first one is they start by saying, Sovereign Lord. And when they call him Sovereign Lord, they use a word in Greek that you wouldn't like today. It's despotis, despot. What's a despot today? Dictator. <laughs> it's a very pretty negative term. But in the ancient Greek, what, the, what it was used more often for was for a slave master. And what it meant was this person has unchallengeable power. They're sovereign. No one else has power like this person. And therefore, by starting their, their prayer by saying, Sovereign Lord, they're not just, being, not just paying homage to God, though it is. It's also reminding themselves that God is sovereign over all that they're about to ask God for things. But if they don't know that he is sovereign and ruler over all, with power over all, then what are their prayers about? And so they start by saying, the Lord is sovereign. You are sovereign. Reminding themselves, this is who we stand before. Second thing they do is they call him the creative Lord. They, they go and they say, he's the one who created heaven and the earth and all the things in them. And by doing that, what, we're, what, what they're reminding themselves is not only is God the owner of all, because he created it, but he is the creative power of all, and he is the carer and sustainer of all things. Because God, what he creates, he then cares for and sustains. He loves it. He's compassionate on it. But that creativity can't be forgotten because we pray to a God who is incredibly creative. He can make everything from nothing. He can turn our worst fears and the worst tragedies in our lives somehow into incredible, wonderful blessings. How? We don't know. But we need to be reminded that as we pray for the impossible and in impossible situations, we pray to a God who is infinitely creative. And we can't just limit him and say, hey, this is the only way I see you can answer this prayer. If only we could see it. It's, I don't like quoting Hamlet because generally Hamlet's a, a, a horrible secular thinker. Shakespeare doesn't put good words in his mouth generally. But when he says, Horatio, there is more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your wild philosophy, then I agree with him. 
There's more in the world, and it's God. So he's creative, he's sovereign. Next thing they say is he is the revealing Lord. And here's where they quote Psalm 2. And why this is important is the fact that God reveals himself to us tells us he is involved in our lives. He's not standing outside aloof and just indifferent like some kind of absentee landlord. He wants to be involved, not just active in our lives, but he wants you to know who he is, and he wants you to be involved in his plan because he has this great plan. And yet, you're going to see, we're going to go through some examples later. He wants not only to execute his plan because he's sovereign, his plan will come to fruition. He writes the story, not you. But at the same time, he welcomes you into that story to be an active participant, even able in some sense, as John Calvin, people pick on John Calvin for being hard. Calvin says, in some sense, God allows us to be active in the world in his, through our prayers. Somehow we can change things. I don't understand it, but he does. And in this, this passage, he, he quotes Psalm 2. And when he quotes Psalm 2, what he's, why this is encouraging for them, why they bring it up now, is they're saying first these things. First, the psalmist understood, God through the psalmist understood that opposition was going to come. The world always opposes God. And so as the church and as you and I struggle through life when opposition comes in whatever form, we can take heart and say, this is exactly what he said would happen. And so ironically, the very thing we hate and dread becomes an affirmation of God's truthfulness. He was right. Yes, we're struggling. Yes, we're opposed. But he said it would happen. The second thing it shows us is Peter, John, and the early church could pray this and realize something. The opposition is actually not against John and Peter and the church or you and I. It's against God. Ultimately, the battle is between human heart and sin and God. And we, of course, are active in that. And we get involved and we, are, we get the backlash. We, get, we, we sometimes welcome it, whatever. But we're there as participants in this story. But it's encouraging for us to know that here as a church, for instance, so long as we preach the gospel, let the gospel offend the world. Let it. Let us not. But let the gospel offend the world. Because if it does, it's God they reject, not you and I. And so we can be bold because God is revealing these things. He's told us he's going to do this. And then another thing as well, which is probably the most encouraging part of Psalm 2, is it says, why do they rage in vain? Ultimately, the opposition will fail. Listen, we've peaked at the end. The devil did it, and we win. And so that's very hard to see in the midst of gloom, but it is an encouragement to the church. They don't need to think that this opposition is going to close the church. I say it here often, friends, nothing will close Redeemer except for Christ alone. Simple. It won't be COVID, it won't be restrictions, it won't be your unfaithfulness. It'll be Christ and Christ alone. It is his church. He opens it, he grows it, he sustains it, he will close it. And so we have this great confidence that no matter what we see in the media, sometimes legitimate, sometimes because unfortunately you're paying attention to the wrong websites that are heaping up anxiety and terrifying you, Christ alone, <laughs> he is the God of creation. He is the sovereign Lord. He reveals the truth, not CNN not Fox News, not, I don't know, pick a thing, Epoch Times. Pick a, uh, uh, none of those are the arbiter of truth. Christ alone is. And the fourth thing that reveals is this, that he is the controlling Lord, or the Lord of history is probably a better way. Because right after the, he, they, they prayed this scripture, which is good too, right? You pray and scripture should be in our prayers. It then, he then seamlessly says what was, what was prophesied there in that psalm too is actually has already taken place and will continue to. It took place here when all of the nations assembled against Christ on Calvary. 
And I say all the nations because it wasn't the Jews who put Christ to death. It's Herod and Pilate, you notice he says, because it's the kings of Israel and the leaders and rulers of the world. It's the world that did it. It's not just the the Jews, he says, but the Gentiles. All of humanity assembles against God. And so what they're seeing is, hey, what we're experiencing now is exactly what God said would happen, and it's been prophesied, so we can take heart that it won't succeed. And all of humanity is, inv- is in- indicted. And here's the great thing. Verse 28, he then says, they all gathered, right? They all gathered to fight against, against Christ and to push back and, and resist him. But they came to do whatever your hand had and your plan had predestined to take place. So he's saying, you know, all, all the nations could do. They were given perfect freedom to be as wicked and oppositional as they wanted to be, but they were not given the freedom to succeed. They're not. And so are you a free agent in this world? You're free to be a sinner, but you're not free to have your sin conquer. Christ won't let it. And so that's an encouraging thing. So you see, as they're praying, how they're getting encouraged. They see this, they begin to remind themselves Christ is sovereign, he's creative, he's revealed this already, and he is the Lord of history, not the kings who claim they are, not the economy that thinks it is, not COVID, nothing else, Christ alone. And so this shapes them really well. And you know, you may say, but Carl, we've heard this before. Like, we've been attending Redeemer. We know you talk about this sort of thing. We know he is sovereign. That's not our problem. I disagree. And I don't, we, I'm sure we know it on paper. But I agree with R.C. Sproul, who says, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of man. And this is because most of us can behave like functional atheists. We don't believe it. We, we, we could answer the theology questions. But in your life, when there's an opposition to the church and it comes through the government, or even recently when you can't pray at Remembrance Day, what is the first instinct of the church? It's often, unfortunately, well, we have to pick it. We have to protest. We've got to do things. Listen, we have lawyers who do that. We have people, journalists. We have people called to do that in the church. The church's primary task is to worship and proclaim. That's what we do. And so we have to remember that when all the enemy comes, they are not sovereign. I don't dance to their tune. You don't dance to their tune. We dance to Christ's tune. And so we have to remember this. He is sovereign. And in this position now, knowing and having filled themselves up in their hearts and their minds that God is sovereign. He is Lord. He is powerful, good. His promises are true. With all of that in mind, then in verse 29, you hear them say, and now, and they turn to prayer. Well, it's all prayer, but they turn to the petition portion where they ask God something. So now we turn to what they pray for. And so what they're praying for is they pray for three things. It's really very simple. In fact, it's almost disarmingly simple. The first thing is they say, look upon their threats. Now, look upon their threats. They don't say, keep us safe, protect us in the midst of, of persecution. They don't say, smash the teeth of our enemies. They don't say thwart them. They don't say let all of them die and a new crop of believers come in. They don't say that. All they say is, and in the Greek it's very simple, it's look upon. Look upon what they've said. Just look at it. Now, this can, Sarah and I had this conversation a bit this week. It can sound defeatist at times because Christians, sometimes if you, if you don't dwell on it, if you just say, Lord, just consider what they've said, and then you move on, it's like, whoa, whoa is that enough? And sometimes we say things like, thy will be done when we pray. And we should. We should pray it 100%. The challenge is how we do it sometimes. Sometimes we say it, and we actually don't say it in faith. We say it in defeatism. What we're saying is, like you're praying with somebody who's who's dying, let's say. 
or really struggling with their health, and you pray for their health and healing. You say, Lord, we, we pray for their healing, but thy will be done. And sometimes, maybe, Maybe you're not like me, but sometimes, don't you say that will be done? More, not because you, believe, you want it done, but because you actually are preparing yourself for a no answer to prayer? Like, I don't believe you're going to heal. I'm going to pray for healing, but, you know, just in case it doesn't come through, I don't want this person discouraged. I don't want to be discouraged. So your will be done. You know, it's like a, a Band-Aid that covers it. It's a safety gap, right? So if my prayer, as confident as I am, doesn't come true, if it's not answered the way I think it, the way I'm praying it, then... I'm going to say thy will be done, because then it's God's will, you know, sorry, it's not my fault, it's not my lack of faith, it's God. And when we say it like that, this idea of thy will be done is weak, but is that statement, thy will be done, is it a cop-out? No, it shouldn't be. Yeah, we use it that way, but it shouldn't be. And the way to understand what we mean when we say thy will be done, the reason they're so secure in this, in this prayer, it's so simple, just God, we trust you. They're, that's what they're saying, right? They're saying, God, we trust that you will look at what's happening and respond well. That's what we know. We don't even need to ask anymore if we don't want, because you are God. Now, when Jesus is in Luke 22, I try to keep things with Acts and Luke together, since it's the same author. And when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is praying, uh, he says, Father, if you, are, if you are willing, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Is, he, is it a cop-out? Is he saying, I don't want this. In his humanity, Christ knows, I don't like this. I don't, I don't want what I'm feeling. I don't want to feel separation from you. I don't want to die. So take it from me. But I guess you're going to do what you're going to do. Is that what he's doing? No, it's not what he's doing. He's actually showing such incredible wisdom and humility that we need to figure out and start to try to understand and model. Because what he is saying is this. He knows that he should pray, and he prays honestly. I don't want this cup. But he also knows that because he is human and he's, he's experiencing the same thing we feel, struggling, suffering, dejection, abandonment, he feels these things, he also says, but I, your will has to be done. And he doesn't say that as a defeatist, he says, because I know my emotions want me to run from this. My emotions can't be trusted. So Lord, I want your will to be done more than I want my will to be done. In my flesh, I want this cup to pass. In my flesh, I want this person healed. In my flesh, I want the world to have peace. But I could be wrong. I may be praying for the wrong thing. And so when you say thy will be done, what it is is actually an incredible amount of faith. You're saying, Lord, regardless, even if you don't give me what I want, your will be done because your will is you know better and desire better for me than I do. And basically what you're saying is, Lord, give me what I would pray for if I knew what to pray for. And so... Your prayers of petition ought to have, all at once, honesty, where you're brutally honest, saying, I don't like what's happening. <laughs> look, at the, look at the Psalms. They're brutally honest. Crush my enemies. Heal me now. I'm righteous. Do it. And they're not being arrogant. They're doing what humans do. And God is saying, listen, and all through Scripture, I'm going to show you two examples. Uh, well, we could do more, but I'm going to limit it. He not only answers the prayer, but he says yes and no at the same time. And let me show why we pray this way and how God does it all the time and how he answers it better than you could. And just two examples, one from Scripture, one from a modern example in this one. In Genesis 17, Abraham has been told already that he's going to have a son that will be blessed and all the nations will be blessed. He's going to have Isaac. But at this point, he doesn't have Isaac. And so what he does, he prays and he says, oh, that you would give the blessing to Ishmael. If only you would give this blessing to my illegitimate son, because, of course, 
Abraham can't foresee a way he's going to have a natural son. God's answer in verses 20 and 21, you can read it, is so wonderful. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to answer your prayer the way you want, because if I do, I'll be, it'll ruin everything. <laughs> I'm going to give this blessing is for Isaac. He's going to get it, not Ishmael. But your prayer for your other son is good, so I'm going to bless him as well. And so God all at once answers and doesn't answer the prayer. And the same thing, a modern example, I just read this week, Tim Keller is a, was the pastor of Redeemer in New York City, uh, passed away, but he, he said, you know, when he was in seminary, he's a young man, and he knew he was going into ministry, and he had this girlfriend, but he sensed the relationship was going to break up. And so he prayed, God, don't let it break up, because I cannot be the person you're calling me to be without her. I need her as my ministry partner, otherwise I, I don't think I could do this. God's answer was, no, you can't have this woman. She's not yours. So they break up. He said, but God honored that part that said you need a ministry partner because it's true, you can't do it alone. So he then brings in Kathy, who becomes his wife for 50 years. That is the faithful ministry partner. And here we're seeing this all through this passage. When, Israel, when the church says, look upon their threats and they leave it there, it's incredible faith saying, Lord, we trust you. You know what we're thinking. They don't love this idea of persecution. But you know, just look upon it, because you're so just, you're so caring, you're so loving, you will answer it the way it should be answered. Incredible faith, thy will be done. Pray it differently from now on. Second thing they pray is for boldness. And grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness. Two things are wonderful here. First thing is they're not distracted. They don't say, what we need is a picket. What we need is a, is a, is a lobby group to fight for our rights before the Sanhedrin. That's what we need. No, they don't do that. They don't turn to social media. They didn't have it but I don't think they would have anyway. Instead, what do they do? They say, we can't be distracted by these things. Our job remains, preach the gospel, preach it. And so as they pray for boldness, what they're saying is, we're going to do it. We're going to preach anyway, but Lord, amidst the persecution, make us bold so we don't flounder. Keep us faithful to this task. It's like they have blinders on, right? And that's what we need to be like. We have to be aware of what's happening in the world, aware of the persecution, aware of things, but don't let it distract you because I don't think the enemy cares whether you're completely unfaithful or if you're distracted from the goal. Either way, you're not accomplishing what God called you to. And so as, as Christians, you need to see financial situations in your life, marital problems, all is vitally important. But what is the goal? The goal is honor God. So the marriage pro is a problem, actually. Get, get counseling. Um, you want to be whole there but you will never get distracted. And so this is why I say it often to you. This is why when people come to me and they're quoting news and apocalyptic people trying to fill them with anxiety, I get very frustrated. Stop being distracted by the sky. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Pray for boldness to do that. Okay? And, and boldness and, and courage away from the anxiety from those people who are trying to make us feel anxious in this world. We have nothing to be anxious about. Nothing. And so that's one thing. They're not distracted. The second thing is they expect to act. See, they see prayer as being passive and active. Passive meaning they're going to ask for boldness, but they're not just going to wait there until they feel bold to do something. And that's, that's, an important, that's a sign of maturity. And it's all through Scripture as well, this idea that they expect to exercise boldness, not just receive it, right? Uh, you know, we've heard it's an age-old adage that says if, if you ask for courage to evangelize, God isn't necessarily going to make you feel like Billy Graham. He's going to instead give you opportunities to be evangelists. He's going to put people in your life and say, now go and be bold. I will work through you as you do it, as you're faithful to walk out. 
And we see this again all through Scripture. Look at two examples in the Bible where this happens, where prayer is all at once passive, where God gives something, but active, where we're expected to do something with that prayer. So one is in, uh, happens in, uh, after exile. After the exile, Israel returns to Jerusalem from Babylon. And as they're rebuilding the wall, uh, their enemies decide now's the time to strike. They're weak, the walls aren't built, let's attack them. So they plan an attack. And Nehemiah, in, in chapter 4, verse 9 of his book, says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. See, they prayed for protection, but they didn't say, well, that's it. We're just going to pray and, and sit back and wait for lightning to strike them. It was, no, we're going to pray and we're going to do something. We're going to live out that prayer. We're going to be an answer to the prayer in some, some regard. In Isaiah, there's this uh, wonderful scene where Hezekiah is dying. That's not wonderful. <laughs> but but it's, a, it's a good scene either way. He's dying and he prays to God, give me more time. And God answers the prayer, and he sends Isaiah to Hezekiah, and Isaiah says something really cool. He says, listen, God has extended your life by 15 years, but, he says, he says God has done it. You're going to get 15 more years. But then he adds this, but let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. And so the, the, the receiving 15 years in healing does not mean he isn't supposed to do something to help the healing come along. It's not because he produces the healing. God does. But there's this understanding in the early church that we don't just pray and passively expect God to do everything. But there's this understanding that he will provide and will do everything to help us accomplish what he's called us to. And so they're relaxed because they know they're going to preach. They've told the council, we're going to keep doing it. We have to listen to God. And yet they expect God to help them in it. And there's this peace in that. And the third thing they pray for, which you can't spend as much time, is the last part that says, while this is happening, while you stretch out your hand, so while they're preaching boldly, um, you're going to do this while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So what they're saying is, this is hard ground. Israel is not like modern Canada. See, when we preach here, people have heard about Jesus. People have had a lifetime and experience of understanding a little bit of what the gospel is, even if the new generations don't have as much. But in that time, no one believed. No one. It's hard ground. In fact, Israel, as you know, is really against the idea that a man can become God. So they realize their preaching alone can't do it. God must be active, not just to make them bold, but to somehow break the hard ground to make place for the seed to be planted. And in those contexts, miracles do the work in the, in the book of Acts. It's the miracles that shake people and cause them to pay attention. They don't believe because of the miracle, but they do take notice. And that's what we've seen at Pentecost and with this lame man. And this is why I think today we don't see a ton of miracles here now in the same way, but you do often hear reports of them in the mission field. Because in the mission field, you're dealing with situations that aren't Christianized. And is it possible that there, there's a need, that the word needs to be accompanied by something that will open and shake this culture that knows nothing? Anyone here who spent time in the mission field will probably attest and say, we've seen things that we've never seen in North America. So, they're praying for help in that last part. We can't go into all the details of, heal, of miracles, though I'm sure you'd like to. So what do they pray for? They pray for God's will to be done, for boldness to do their part in it, and for God to help them break through. And they're unshakable because they trusted God. They know that God knows what he will do. He will do what he's going to do, what is best for them. And there's nothing like it, guys. There's nothing like the peace of knowing that you can trust that God will do exactly what is right. 
That doesn't mean you're inactive, as we've just seen. It doesn't mean you're, dis- you're complacent. But it does mean you trust. And you know, thank goodness, how many times in your life has God answered your prayer not the way you, a- you asked it? Because if he gave you what you wanted, oh my goodness. I don't know, I'd be, I'd be a pirate right now. Kid, I want to be a pirate and an archaeologist. I'd be Indiana Jones. I am not Indiana Jones. So, that's what we pray for. But then now, how do, why were they heard? So God answers the prayer. And we know he answers because he shows up and he shakes the room and he fills them with a spirit full of boldness for this task. And um, I love John Chrysostom. He's an old uh, fourth century um, preacher in the East. They called him the golden-tongued preacher. And he says, the place was shaken and that made them all the more unshaken. And because they were shook, they were unshakable. Now what is it though? But why? Why does God answer this prayer? Because he has no business answering it, right? They're, I mean, who are they? Why does he answer the prayer? How do they know it? Why is it they're so confident that God will answer the prayer? And the answer comes actually in a very subtle way of what they say. They refer to Jesus here in a way that nowhere else in the New Testament is he referred to. They call him your holy servant, Jesus. That's a, that's a unique way of looking at it. We could spend a lot of times uh, looking at this because all the words make a difference. Your means he's personal to God. Holy means he's perfect and set apart, arguably divine. Uh, Jesus means he's human as well. But the servant part immediately would have gotten every Israelite at the time, every Jew, and hopefully you also thinking about what we read earlier, which is Isaiah 53, that he is a suffering servant, a specific kind of servant. And the church knows this. And at Gethsemane, in Gethsemane, because we already preached this, when he's, preaching, when he's praying for the cup to pass for him, he doesn't want to go to the cross in his flesh. He doesn't want to. He's resisting it at that moment. At least he's crying out and praying about it, wrestling with it at least. When he's doing that, here's what we do know. That prayer should have been answered. And this is what I mean by that. He didn't deserve it. It wasn't his cup. It should have been answered. If he got his way, if God gave him exactly what he deserved there, he wouldn't have received the cup and you would have had to drink it because you deserve it and I deserve it. And so what happens is God says exactly what he says to, like we've spoken about earlier. He says, no, the cup cannot pass from you. The cup can't pass from you. It has to be drunk. Someone's got to drink this cup. And so he says, no, Jesus, you have to drink the cup. But yes, it will pass from your people. Because, and see, because the, cro- the earth shook in anguish at the cross, it shook in approval in this room. Because it shook, and because Christ drank full the cup you deserve, now you know your prayers will be answered, not because you deserve a hearing, but because Christ won you a hearing. And because of that confidence of knowing Christ as the servant who died on their behalf, the church, not in arrogance, but in great, incredible reliance on the cross, says, I can pray, and I know my prayer will be answered and heard may not be answered the way I'm asking for it right now. That's okay, because it will be answered perfectly. And that sort of confidence is what you and I need to understand and have. Now, as Christians, it's very simple. If you're a Christian, pray boldly. Boldly, I mean, not just with asking for big things, but pray honestly. Look at the laments. This isn't a lament here, but look at the lament psalms. They're angry. They're frustrated. God can take it. He's a big boy. He can take it. And pray that way, knowing that God will give you exactly what you would have asked for if you knew what to ask for. That's the confidence we have because of Christ. But if you're a skeptic, here's where I would also push. Um, If you're a skeptic, you still pray. 
A recent Angus, po- Angus Reid poll here in Canada says that 86% of Canadians pray. And 70% of them pray for either thanks for something, they thank somebody <laughs> for something, they thank whoever they're praying to, or they ask him for something. So, my question is this. Here we are at Thanksgiving, and I often hear people uh, saying, uh, secular people, non-believers, I get it, uh, saying, boy, I'm so thankful for my job, for my family, for my health, for my whatever. My only question is, to whom are you thankful? To whom are you thankful? Are you thankful to your employer for paying you well? Are you thankful to your own efforts for being clever enough to amass a good fortune? Are you just thankful to your family for being family? Like, who is, who is the object of the thankfulness? And when you ask for something that no one can provide for you, who are you asking for help? Because it's funny, we just say that we pray and we say we're praying to the universe. My friends, the universe, secular-wise, is cold and dead. It cares nothing for you. If you don't believe it, go into space. You'll see. Go into nature. Go and see how red in tooth and claw it is. So who, I just wonder, who are we praying to? And, you know, Abraham Lincoln, and I'm, I'm pretty firm on this, most American presidents were not Christians as we would think so. They're deists. They do, we we want to glorify American history. It wasn't nearly as Christian, I think, as we think. Abraham Lincoln was not a, a firm evangelical. But he says something interesting. He says, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. Agreed. That's why people pray, because they have nowhere else to go. My question is, don't you want to know? How do you know your prayers are even heard if you're speaking to a dead universe you don't even acknowledge? How do you know if you're praying to a karmic God who's only going to give you a response for how you've lived in a previous life? What if you were a scoundrel in your previous life? Obviously you were, because we wouldn't be suffering if you wouldn't. And so who you, I, I just asked, poke that, that desire you have as a skeptic to pray and to seek the help of someone outside of you, 86% of you. If you're one of the 14%, you're probably lying. I'm sorry, people pray. We all get to the end of our rope. And I get it, I'm not even mocking anybody, it's just the way it is. But I'm saying, how do you know, what are you doing? Follow that impulse, follow it to its logical conclusion. You say you're a student of reason, follow the reason. And you're going to find at the end of it, Lord willing, this God who died for you. The only one who will answer your prayers this way and won't expect you to pay blood for it is Christ, is the God of the Bible. There's no other. And when you see that he bore silence on the cross so that your prayers could be answered, you will then become the sort of person like in these churches, like in this early church, that cared more about getting Christ than about their own comfort. And we as a church will become more of a church that wants Christ rather than our own comfort and safety and warm building. It's important. These are good. But these are trappings. Friends, this will die. Let's, let's run to the cross. We have a God who wants to hear. I love that line in Deuteronomy. What other people are so great as to have, a, has their God, have their God near them when they pray? The answer is simple, none. Only us. And it's not because you deserve it, because Christ deserves it. It's awesome. Let's pray. Let's